When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Oh What A Time, the history podcast that tries to decide if the past was absolutely rubbish. I'm Ennis James. I'm Chris Skull. And I'm Tom Crane. And each week on this show we'll be looking at a brand new historical subject. And today we're going to be discussing money, money, money. <laughs> From the Dutch tulip boom and bust to the black gold of the Rhonda Valley and the dot-com bubble delivered by Tom, his first modern subject, I Can't Wait. We're recording this podcast in the morning, L, and you've just let us know you're living a medieval experience at the moment. The boiler yeah. has gone down. Uh, yeah, is he went into the bathroom? She said the towel rails off. <laughs> that's how it begins. Middle, that's f- first world problems. If, I've, if, if ever I've heard one, that is the, the most first world problem. And I said, oh, that's weird. And then I thought, oh, the radiator now, her bedroom's off. Oh, no. Well, that's a shame. <laughs> let, let, let that be a localised issue. <laughs> and then I checked the living room, and then I had a look at the boiler. It's just completely dead. So obviously I hadn't come on. So was he had to have a cold shower, like a proper cold shower. Yeah. And, uh, God, she made a fuss. <laughs> it is awful, to be fair. A cold oh shower is, is, is terrible. I mean, we've talked about on this show quite a lot, basically, that none of us would really have survived in the time prior to central heating. That seems to be history-wise <laughs> the biggest issue for us. I, it's weird. I can see why you wouldn't wash if you didn't have access to hot water. Interesting. But people have always tried to, you know, people have have, have bathed in front of fires and they've warmed water for baths and stuff. Mm-hmm. But certainly if you go back far enough when that was difficult, I could see why you'd be sitting there in your tracksuit thinking, sod that. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you have to go back too far for like heat, for heating water to be a problem. In any era, which is not even that long ago, probably 1920s, if you're having to create a fire to warm water, <laughs> I, the, that's quite a high bar, isn't it? You're having to head into the wood to find dry sticks <laughs> for your sort of... Like, <laughs> as soon as you don't have central heating, you're basically in that world. <laughs> that's true. However, I've got quite a few friends who've got into this sort of Wim Hof, cold shower yes. thing. Henry Packer, who's a brilliant comedian and a writer who I work with, he has cold showers like three or four yep. times a week. It's yeah. a thing that kind of wakes Me too, Tom. Do you do that as well, do you? Yeah, and I cannot wait to have a cold shower in front of Izzy and not make a fuss. <laughs> Actually make negative fuss. <laughs> and just go, hmm, mm, yeah. So walk me through the situation where that's happening. Are you saying, Izzy, come in here, I want to show you something? Or is she cleaning her teeth? Or what's she doing? Shower's upstairs, relatively close to the bedroom and relatively close to the bathroom. So, yeah, I'll have a shower. I probably won't mention it. Yeah. (laughs) And then I'll just have a really, really cold shower. And then just to let her know, just a reminder that it's cold. (laughs) About three minutes in, I'll go... (laughs) (laughs) But that will be it. (laughs) She sounded like she was being tortured. Ellis, do you remember this? This is the worst thing that's ever happened to me in a shower. When Ellis and I were both at Cardiff University at the same time, in the third year, downstairs we had one of those stand-up rectangular showers where all the sides are glass walls. You know those ones? Yeah, Yeah, a classic 
student shower. I was in there, relaxing in the heat, leaning against against one of the walls of the rectangular shower, and the whole thing came off the floor and toppled (laughs) over and exploded. And I'm lying on the ground, surrounded in shards of glass, the water still spraying off. No shower anymore. The cubicle is completely collapsed. It's fallen down like a high-rise building. And I'm lying naked on the floor in glass, being sprayed by water. Horrendous. You could have ended up with, I mean, injuries to your worst bits. (laughs) The The bits you want to injure the least are going to get injured the most. What, um, so what, what were you doing leaning? You were like leaning on yeah, the glass. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of your fault. <laughs> I've got limited sympathy with this. Well, that thing, that's a pretty good lean. Because are you topping over a glass shower? You got oh, bars to Tom used to lift at university. He was a really heavy guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I was really hench back then. No, well, ideally, I lie down in a shower. I think we've talked about this before. I always lie down in a shower. That's how I relax. And you can't lie down in one of those showers, so the best you can do is lean against the wall like sort of you're wearing a leather jacket and grease and looking cool. <laughs> As in the movie, not grease the country. Not just really specific about where I'm leaning. <laughs> uh, should we get into correspondence? Absolutely. Rebecca Close has emailed about Britain's best format point, One Day Time Machine. Cue the jingle. It's the one-day time machine. 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 So Rebecca said, hi, lads. Okay, let's face it. If you've only got one day in the past, we all know we're not going back to cure cancer. Have we done that, by the way? I don't think we have cured cancer yet. I, don't, I, I think you can only go back and do things that we've done now. Can't you? That, that, that would be a time machine that goes forward to the future, I think. <laughs> Hang on, is she using her one-day time machine to come back to email us now? <laughs> She's going, no, she's got two single trips. She's going once forward about 100 years to find out that information, and then she's going way back with that information to to cure cancer. Right, right, right. Um, She says, I'm going back to make some sound financial investments. The question I've been toying with over the last couple of weeks is how far back are you going and what are you investing in? Which is quite an interesting one, that. Do you go back to the, the 1800s to invest in oil corp and generate some real generational wealth? Uh, and trust your ancestors not to screw it all up? Or are you going back 15, 20 years to invest in Facebook and buy a load of Bitcoin? Or do you go for the Hail Mary, as she described it, by heading back to marry one of your infant ancestors into the British royal family? Then she said, as a subject, money is a great one to delve into in general. Well, we're doing that today, Rebecca. Uh, So how are you making your money? You've got to go back. You've got to invest soundly. How are you making your money? First off, can I just say that Rebecca Kloss is my kind of person. Yeah. That is such a sensible use of Britain's best format point. The world's best format point. Of course. And it hadn't occurred to me. It's so pathetic. It says so much about my personality that when we invented One Day Time Machine, I thought, oh, I'd go back to Carnaby Street and just watch people have a good time and then and then think about it. Well, of course, you would be investing, wouldn't you? That's the clever yeah. thing to do. Well, actually, your initial reaction was, Ellis, you were going to go back as a coffee table. <laughs> yeah. So it's even further from anything useful. I'd be a coffee table next to some young people having a good time. <laughs> I'd be the coffee table that Paul McCartney was putting his cups on as he was changing music. Yeah. yeah. The the idea of going back in time to turn it into a revenue opportunity is this is the Biff Tannen approach, isn't it, from Back to the Future? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So what are you investing in? I think it's really hard to go back and try and marry off your kids. Are you, I mean, yes. 
Also, I wouldn't. I think the thing with being a royal is a lot, an awful lot of hassle that comes with that. Yeah, yeah. And what? Yeah. So I just think I completely agree. Also, what? How are you getting the opportunity to present your infant to the king or queen? <laughs> how? How are you? Yeah. What are you saying to the people at the door of Buckingham Palace? To, that yeah. they're going to let you in and offer your child as a <laughs> what? What opening gambit allows you to say? But honestly, seriously, he's going to be a real looker when he's older. <laughs> <laughs> or you could teach a child a load of popular songs from the modern era, the Beatles back catalogue, yeah. Islands in the Stream, Dolly Parton, Kenny Rogers. Yes. And you go, wait till you hear the ditties that this kid's bringing with him. Yeah. You see, I... And you go, that, that's it. That's how, that's you're in. You're in the court. I, I mean, that's the old... Uh, the Richard Curtis wrote a film about that. I often... I occasionally <laughs> imagine myself going back... Mm. But I don't think I've got the personality of the charisma to sell Love Me Do six months before the Beatles wrote it. I think I'd be cr- criminally ignored. It's not troubling the Especially at a point where a guard has a pike to your throat. <laughs> and it's clear. One, two, two in one. Yeah. So I've, t- I've taken my kid to Buckingham Palace and I've got an acoustic guitar and I'm playing Love Me Do. And I'm like, seriously, listen to me. I guess you guys ain't ready for that yet. <laughs> yeah, it's a tricky one, investments, isn't it? I think, I think for me, I think I, I would go back. I think it's Google. It's these sort of stocks. I think that's where you. you are. So that's not that's not far then, is it? Yeah, not, but at least I'm, far, I'm secure in what I'm asking for. There, I think I'm. Inve- I, my worry is if I go sporting results, I'll go back. I'll go. I'll put ten grand on the FA Cup final, and I'll get the year wrong. There'll be two Man United <laughs> yeah. Arsenal ones, and I've chosen the wrong one, and then I come back. I've well, lost ten grand. Google was only founded in 1998. You would have ages to invest, but, and, and I think you'd still see a really amazing return. Yeah. You wouldn't have to go... You could basically go back, <laughs> rescue yourself from the shattered shower, <laughs> and then invest in Google. And I think, I think that would be a, a, a day spent well. I think that would be the one thing that would make that weirder. If it's the bathroom door had opened that point and me from 2023 had come in and said, get up, Tom, we're going to invest in Google. <laughs> I'd say, at least let me put some clothes on. And then I'd say, presently, I'd say, I've seen it all before, you're me. And I'd go, oh, that's a fair point. And we both leave together. One of us naked, one of us fully dressed. <laughs> to Nat West. To Nat West. <laughs> and we get to Nat West and they say, we're not sending you telling you any shares, you're not wearing any clothes. Please leave. <laughs> and I go, I've got one day to do this. You go home, you put your clothes on, you come back, they go, you've got no, you've got no money. Oh, yeah. Yes, <laughs> that's a again a big issue. You're a student and you're covered in broken glass. <laughs> you are in a fit state to make this investment. All right, you horrible lot. Here's how you can stay in touch with the show. You can email us at hello at earlwatertime.com and you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at earlwatertimepod. Now, clear off. So I'm going to be talking about the dot-com bubble and the way it burst so dramatically. I am going to be talking about the coal boom in the Ronda Valley. And I'll be talking to you about tulip mania in the 17th century. The 17th century was the Dutch golden age. The Netherlands 
Well, frankly, no, the Dutch Golden Age was Euro '88 <laughs> when, when it was Ruud Hullet and Frank Rijkaard and Marco van Basten and Ronald Koeman, and yeah, uh, yeah. and they are also the amazing kit. But still, a lot of people get that wrong. <laughs> Feel free to carry on. <laughs> Embarrassing has happened so early in your piece, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Normally, the most sort of you know glaring mistake is at least ten minutes in, but no, we're from beyond. Um, the Dutch were kings of the world between about sixteen hundred and seventeen twenty. They had the highest per capita income in the world in that period. Ooh. They were a global financial powerhouse and established most of the terms of modern capitalism. It all came out of uh, the Netherlands. Well, well. And do you know what the Dutch love? I'll tell you what they love. Marijuana. <laughs> Orange things. Yes. Bicycles. <laughs> Canals. Yeah. Houses of ill repute. We can't ignore that one. Yep. <laughs> I think you handled that perfectly, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. Good job, man. Phew! <laughs> 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 Dutch listeners turning off in their droves. <laughs> That's the Dutch covered off. Yep. Tulips as well. Tulips. you got... You, um... You know what tulips are, obviously, a brightly coloured, bulbous flower. Uh, it originated as a wildflower in Central Asia. Yeah, they're all right. Tulips, yeah. Have you got opinions on tulips? Do you ever look at a tulip and think, wow, I well, need I've, that? I've read about the Dutch tulip craze, and it really, really changed my opinion on tulips. <laughs> but for the better. <laughs> which, which had previously been neutral. So let I'll I'll, ju- I'll just say that. Now, some of our listeners will know about the Dutch tulip craze. If you don't, strap in, because this is absolutely incredible. It's quite a pretty flower. I'm just having a look here. It's a pleasant... It's a middling flower. Is that all right for me to say that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. It, it's a quite... It, for me, it feels like quite a sort of... Um, oh, no, I've forgotten their birthday... I'm pulling it at yeah. a petrol station at 11 p.m. <laughs> That's what I'm going to go with. Type flower. It's 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 garage quality flowers, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Is it right? This is a half remembered historical anecdote. Doesn't um, Elton John hate tulips? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think it, I've seen. I swear I've saw an Elton John rider, and he asked for like these specific flowers, but not tulips. Never tulips. He's got a real thing against tulips. Really? I mean, they're fine. We had a tulip grow, randomly grow in our front garden. I was like, oh, that's quite, that's interesting. He yeah. he has a song called Tulips on My Organ. I'm sorry? <laughs> Can we be very specific here about what sort of organ we're referring to here? <laughs> so maybe he really likes them. Oh, some people like roses on their piano, but he prefers tulips on his organ. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know if I'm being if I'm being pranked. So, so just to clarify, Elton John either loves tulips, hates them, or is indifferent. Yeah, but what, yeah. what we do know is he does own an organ. We've got we know that we've got that information. <laughs> that much. So, um, so the tulip craze really starts with the Ottomans. They regarded them as a symbol of their empire and its riches. The Ottomans went mad for it. And because they were so big for the Ottomans, when when European diplomats came to visit, uh, they would give them, as gifts, tulips. The European diplomats would take them home. I presume the wives, the girlfriends, the other partners, they're looking at those tulips going, wow. And that yeah. thus, thus planted the seed. Oh, that's nice. Of the tulip craze in Northern Europe. The name tulip is thought to be derived from turban. In Dutch, it's more obvious because the Dutch is tulpen. So it looks like a little turban. That's that's where they think the name comes from. 
So if in the 17th century, in Northern Europe, Tom, you've got your garden. If I come over and see your garden in 17th century and it hasn't got a tulip in it, I might be sick because anyone (laughs) who had a garden needed a tulip in it. It was the number one fashionable commodity. I don't know what the garden craze is now. I don't know what the equivalent would be. What's Uh, decking decking and astroturf? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or if you live outside of a city, um, a big trampoline. The the, the garden craze now is a tired-looking bloke at a barbecue saying, we just astroturfed it in the end. (laughs) We tried two summers where we put actual turf down, but it didn't work. It was was a complete ball leg, so we've astroturfed it. Do you know what the guy who owned, like, the house I moved into, do you know what the guy before me had done? He'd got it astroturfed, but not by a proper astroturfer. He'd nixed offcuts from other people's AstroTurf gardens and just hammered it into the ground with massive nails. That what? is incredible. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> so, and then what happened, because it wasn't done properly, the grass had kind of grown through the AstroTurf in places. So you had this kind of partially partial grass, partial AstroTurf nailed in turf yeah. that was in the garden. It does sound a little bit, wow. Chris, like he's buried a body. <laughs> if you don't mind me saying. <laughs> Anyway, so the tulip craze was was massive, but it, it, the reason the Dutch especially were good at growing uh, tulips, far better than England, France, Italy, the Dutch climate is just perfect for tulip growing and propagation. And it was becoming really lucrative because people wanted tulips. They wanted specifically rarer varieties. So there's this thing called the tulip-breaking virus. I've actually gone quite deep on tulips this morning. And the ones that have this tulip-breaking virus, they produce these really kind of remarkable, exotic colours. They just look, they do look amazing. Multicoloured different flowers. These these are the ones that had a premium. Chris, you've been sucked in, man. (laughs) (laughs) Feel myself getting sucked in. But the other thing that happened is... So you had these really amazing exotic tulips, and then you had the printing press, and the Dutch were turning out these catalogues demonstrating these beautiful tulips. That got people, the buyers abroad, excited, and yes, they wanted tulips. Now we get to the important part. So can I just ask a quick question? So were those tulip catalogues? Is that what you're saying? Tulip catalogues. They're knocking out tulip catalogues, like Argos. Through your letterbox or whatever, and you'd, you'd leaf through all the different yeah. tulips that are available. I'd imagine, I imagine you're passing around the catalogues. Yeah. And you're picking them, and you're going, yeah, they're, these are the ones I want. I quite like that. It feels like quite a calming read, that. Yeah. Have a nice cup of tea, <laughs> comfy chair, leafing through the tulip catalogue. Be quite nice. Yeah, and the the, the um, they're like illustrated. You've seen some pictures of these tulip catalogues. They look amazing. I have to tell you that the reason why the you know you couldn't just grow them in England. Firstly, because the climate wasn't ideal. But secondly, it takes ages to grow a tulip. Tulips grow from bulbs, but it takes three years for a seed to turn into a bulb. Wow. Right. Okay. I'm inst- I'm instantly bored and I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm out. I'm, I'm, I'm I am done. Yeah. No way. So the tulips themselves are very exotic and the pre- and the certain strands are really precious but it because of the time it took to grow from a seed to a bulb. So you plant the seeds, you wait 3 years, you get a bulb, you plant the bulb, that's the thing that flowers. So the Dutch realised, this is the invention of the forward contract, really, because the Dutch were like, well, we're flogging these flowers. Everyone's absolutely loving it. But the thing we could be selling is, why don't we sell the bulb? And so what they were selling the bulb before the bulb was ready in these forward contracts. Are so they saying things like the, the kind of stuff that all marketing people say? We're not actually selling a bulb, we're selling a lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.
Johnny would work on me. Yeah, absolutely. So then people started imagining, well, hang on, these bulbs are going for loads of money. Well, if I buy the bulb and then I grow, start growing the seeds of my own, you know, growing my own tulips, then I could be making loads of money. I become a speculator myself. So the, bulb, the, the price of the bulbs started rising and rising and rising. People started buying like forward contracts for delivery of flowers and bulbs um, in the dormant period in the summer. So people started buying up their bulbs long before they'd actually, they were ready. Wow. But in the 1630s, these money-making schemes started to get out of hand. People were buying the bulbs up front, the flowers up front, and the price just kept going up and up and up. Apparently, the price of three tulip bulbs could buy you a house. That's how much. (laughs) Three tulip bulbs. Wow. The price of the tulip bulb was, in a lot of cases, single bulb being grown in a garden would be worth more than the cost of the entire garden. One bulb. One bulb. So... The Dutch have gone tulip mad. Yeah. In- interestingly, in the year 1657, according to uh, an article published in uh, August 1817, in the year 1657, 120 tulips were sold for the sum of 90,000 guilders. It was mentioned in the Dutch records that a single tulips have been sold for seven, eight, nine, even 10,000 guilders, which is 10 times more than what any person would have given for the garden in which they grew. So, like... It's gone mad. <laughs> so the the the, the pressure, wow. the kind of external demand was extraordinarily high. Yeah, contracts yeah, yeah, yeah. of this kind, it, eventually, it had to crash. Contracts at this point, it's worth bearing in mind, are not being signed at the Amsterdam Stock Exchange. They're being signed in taverns over a few beers. <laughs> oh my like God. These, you, you kind of think of like traders and stuff like that. There is no traders. They're in taverns having a few drinks. <laughs> And so the only thing that really was being traded, in theory, was the signature on a contract. No physical tulip bulbs were changing hands. So yeah. if something went wrong, the price would come crashing down. And in the winter of 1636-1637, I think people just woke up. The price of tulips suddenly crashed, and people were no longer being prepared prepared to buy at the prices being offered. And those stuck with expensive contracts for delivery were liable to lose a fortune. And then they know the date the tulip crash began to happen, the 3rd of February, 1637. The price of tulips peaked, disputes at auctions in Harlem unravelled, and then the entire house of cards came down. Uh, the whole industry collapsed almost overnight. Contracts were not being honoured. The tulip sellers lost a fortune, a financial disaster. Amazing. And this, many people think, was the first boom and bust of the capitalist system. But there is one note I will add. Which is that? There's a, a book with an amazing title. Yeah. Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds uh, by Charles Mackay, written in 1841. This is where a lot of the kind of hyperbole around the, the, the Dutch tulip craze comes from. He, he told the story, but many people think in the, the story that he told in this book is not necessarily factually accurate. They may have been overstated somewhat. But there is, without a doubt, there was a tulip craze and a tulip crash, but the extent to which people are still not quite sure. See, I've read Extraordinary Popular Delusions, so that was yeah. what I knew about the Dutch tulip craze. And... Until Darlow historian said, "Oh, there are, there is some um, there are queries as to how accurate his uh, portrayal of this crisis is or was." Um, I remember uh, that book was my only knowledge of of the Dutch tulip craze. I just remember reading that chapter and every sort of paragraph or so, thinking it's just a tulip. 
Yeah. Can everyone <laughs> calm down? They're just tulips. <laughs> Do you know one thing I read is um, people who defend his account, there's evidence that in some places the prices of tulips dropped by 99.99999%. Right. <laughs> That down down to the price they should have been, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a lot, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. A point that's almost free. That's like a point that I love from that, Chris, is the fact that so many of these deals were done in pubs. That's amazing when drinking. Because yeah. that feeling of waking up I once woke up the next day having hammered and found I bought a Zega Dreamcast on eBay. <laughs> this was like twenty years after the Zega Dreamcast. But that only cost me 40 quid or whatever. <laughs> I hadn't spent £140,000 on a bouquet of flowers. <laughs> so I don't, how do you think you're feeling the next day when you've woken up? You, you, you roll over and there's a, there's a note on the bedside table. You're hung over and it says, by the way, you owe, rude, 300 grand. Oh, God. Yeah. In the middle of it, you'd have thought, oh, that's good. I had a drink last night and I made a fantastic investment that will never go wrong. <laughs> the price of these tulips is only going up. I also wonder what, what the tip was, where this dawning realisation came from. Was it one particularly respected person in the community went, oh, wait a second, this is ridiculous, and then suddenly everyone else did? What happened? What's the tip? I bet it's one person didn't honour their contract. And suddenly you everyone think? went, no, like in the petrol crisis recently. It only takes a few people to panic. Yeah. yeah and everyone's yeah. like, ah, nah. It, it took one person to go, I'm not paying that for that. I'm not going to honour this contract for all these tulips. Sod that. And then yeah. the, other, the other bloke, well, yeah, me neither. Me neither, me neither. <laughs> yeah, they're just flowers. I, uh, <laughs> I've all got up and I realise I've spent an enormous amount of money on some flowers. And I've, I think we've all gone mad. <laughs> it's a bit like um, the crazer on Prime, the energy drink. Yeah. Absolutely. And if you're not I've involved... just invested loads in that. <laughs> like, <laughs> if you're not involved in it, it just seems absolutely baffling. And I remember um, I was being shown around as like a student, not a student flat, I was, I was trying to rent a, a flat in Cardiff when I was in my mid-twenties, about a year before the uh, credit crunch and the 2008 economic crisis. So I was in my sort of mid to late 20s by that point. I remember the estate agent saying, how long do you want to rent it for? And I said, well, for the foreseeable, because I'm not really in a position to buy. And she said, oh, you should move out. You should go back to your hometown. You've got to buy a house. I said, well, I'm, I'm waiting for uh, a stock, like a housing crash to come. And she said, it never will. It's just going to be like this forever now. <laughs> a year later when I turn the news on. May <laughs> thinking of it. It never will. It never. This is it now. <laughs> this is it now. I think that's, that's become that's becoming a it's becoming a catchphrase for this podcast. This is it now. <laughs> yeah. It never will. Claire no, and this I. Is it. This Claire and I were once shown around a, a flat in Dalston, and Claire knows a bit about property. And she went over to one of the walls and went, "I think this this might be rising damp here." And the estate agent said, "Rising damp doesn't exist." <laughs> Which is incredible, <laughs> just to be that brazen. Rising damp doesn't yeah. exist. What? Does that, what? I could. We're looking at the rising damp. Yeah. Like, feel and then, it. of course, and then of course, you went into the shower to test it, lean on it, smashed it, and they said, "Well, <laughs> they lie on the floor naked amongst the broken glass." Well, you knocked ten grand off this. Yeah. <laughs>
Right then, I'm taking you back to South Wales. Now, if you'd wandered through the Rhondda, sometime around 1830, you wouldn't have seen a huge amount. So a very small population. Um, it was mainly farming and farmers. And you'd have thought, yeah, it's, it's pretty here, actually. It's I like it. And you might, you, you, thought, you might have thought to yourself, I might write a poem about this, or maybe paint a bit of it. But you'd never think to yourself... Look, I'm going to make a fortune here. The idea of making money from that place just wouldn't have crossed your mind. Now, within half a century, the Rhondda was the centre of the world's steam coal trade, its energy supply, and it was the most important industrial valley anywhere on the planet, with a population that had grown from 500 in 1801 to a peak well in excess of 150,000 just over a century later. That's mad. Now, imagine that. Just imagine if you were one of the original... Uh, people who lived in the Rhondda. So you were probably a farmer. There were tiny little villages and settlements. And then 100 years later, there's 150,000 people there. Like towns that oh. had, hadn't existed are suddenly a really big, important Welsh towns. Now, can, can I say, I might one day time should go back, start the time lapse so you can see that build over time. Oh, I mean, that's, yes. That's wasted. Wow. That'd be lovely. What a great idea. Again, it's not going to make you a fortune, Chris. <laughs> But what a YouTube video. Yeah. <laughs> you get at least 10,000 hits on that, and you? Exactly, yeah. First question, how's he done that? It doesn't make any sense. I don't know how he's... Because that's the past. Now then, coal. It was referred to as black gold. And it found its way onto ships, including the great ocean liners, going back and forth across the Atlantic, uh, steam engines in factories, power stations, producing electricity that powered homes, office blocks, even the London Underground... Powered homes, you know, when it came to cooking and heating, steam locomotives, railways in Britain, Ireland, France, Belgium, Spain, Portugal, Italy, Egypt, India, Turkey, most of South America and the Russian Empire all relied upon the coal dug out of the ground by tens of thousands of miners crammed into sort of uh, narrow gulches in South Wales. So, no, it's 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 insane when you think what the coal industry meant to Wales. Yeah. yeah. Now, so it's, it's and people are still really, really proud of it. Um, but the, what people forget is the the initial businessmen and engineers who got involved. People thought that they were mad. They thought that they were as mad as the touch tulip sellers. <laughs> they were like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> yeah, it's quite a kooky thing, is it, to dig into the ground? And go, Look, this stuff. This stuff's worth loads. Of course <laughs> yeah. it is, mate. Of course yeah. it is, idiot. Now, the greatest speculator of all. The man who perfected the art of the deal, you know, uh, to use Donald Trump's phrase, um, was David Alfred Thomas, otherwise known as Lord Rhondda. And he inherited a modest mining company from his dad, Samuel, but transformed it into a giant combine or a trust, which had this octopus of business interests all over the world. So he was providing coal, he was providing transport, you know, trains and ships. Um, he was bringing goods back because they had interest in, like, Argentine beef and Peruvian fertiliser and citrus fruits from the Levant and all sorts of stuff. And wow. it was all managed by local agents. So they were sort of, they were, they, it was a Cambrian company. Now, anyway, someone might need coal. Mr. Thomas was there. He was able to sell it. He would ship it to you, make a tidy profit from the simplicity of the transaction. So the Americans referred to him as the coal king. It was, you know... It was he was the sort of Jeff Bezos of the nineteenth century. <laughs> the Ronda Valley. He made millions I and bet. millions of pounds. 
On average, each of the four coal companies he owned in the Ronda made 175 grand a year between 1907 and 1912. Wow. So put together, that made for a sum of £875,000 per company, or £3.5 million in total. In today's money, that equates yeah. to more than 330 million quid. But Whoa. to get a sense of the scale, you can sort of you can actually add a few notes to the end of that. Like it's he was just vastly wealthy. Yes, yeah. Now he yeah. died in nineteen eighteen at the age of uh sixty-two. He'd survived the sinking of the Lusitania in nineteen fifteen. But then he began working on the demise of the industry that had made him rich. Now the the thing I, I, I always find almost difficult to believe with the coal industry is that by nineteen thirteen Welsh mines reached a peak in their output. So it was 36 million tonnes of coal were produced that year. Um, and it just, uh, it, was, it, was, it was employing about a third of the Welsh workforce, all wow, in the same mad. industry. So then obviously if coal is affected, everything is affected. Because even yeah. if you're not a coal miner, if, you're, if you run a shop or something in, in, a, in, a, in a pit village... If those people lose their jobs, then obviously you're affected. So it just it affected absolutely everything. So when did that start? When did that decline start? What, what, well, the, what was the that? decline began in 1913. That was the absolute peak. Right. So obviously okay. there's no coal industry left in Wales now, but uh, um, the peak was 1913. Now he foresaw that oil, whether it's from the Middle East or from the North American oil fields, would provide a new age of energy production. And he was determined to monopolise that industry before anyone else. When it was pointed out to him that this would irreparably damage the collieries of his native South Wales, he shrugged his shoulders and said, that's business. Oh! <laughs> wow! Have you ever thought, Ellis, genuine question, had you been born at a time that the Welsh mines were at their strongest... Would you have got, how do you think you'd have dealt with that life as someone well, my, who... Well, my had, grandfather did it. Your grandfather did it, so okay. So I'm kind of <laughs> not that far removed from it. Okay, it yeah. absolutely <laughs> terrifies me because I would be so rubbish. I'm so, I find that era so romantic, like the Welsh Valleys, co- the coal mining boom. Like I imagine the communities and what the pubs would have been like. Well, that's and the maybe, thing is, is camaraderie. They would often say stuff like, you know, your, your life is in your mate's hands. So that creates a kind of friend, a bond of friendship that is difficult to imagine. Absolutely. That's really interesting. My brother uh, it, it was a climber and he's, I've never seen a tightness of friendship like with his mountaineering yeah, yeah, yeah. friends. And it's the same thing where you literally, your life is in the hands of those people. And I'm sure it is exactly the same. I'm, I'm, I'm not make, drawing the comparison with this, but I once went caving for my Duke and Edinburgh award. <laughs> and um, I could categorically say it was the worst afternoon of my life. <laughs> it is the most unhappy I've ever been. So I'm going to take us now to the 1990s. Oh, um, oh yes. Should we name? Should we name some things from the 90s? Shell suits. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyone else want to say anything? Walkman. Melcy. Melcy, that's nice, Chris. Uh, I can't, I can't go, my daughter's into trolls. I'm like, tro- yeah. I feel like so old because I'm like, oh, I, I remember trolls. The thing with trolls as well, always on the desks of girls doing important exams. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I love as well you when did, you when you someone would... would have a pencil with a troll on the top. Yeah, you did your GCSEs or A levels in the nineteen nineties. The girl sitting next to you almost certainly had a troll on her desk. Yeah, 
absolutely. And now, like the Dutch tulip craze, appears absolutely <laughs> crazy. So I'm going to talk to you about the dot-com bubble in the 90s. So, bit of context. The, the internet properly took off in the 1990s. Um, it had previously been used, uh, for want of a better phrase, by boffins and, and the government. Um, and ministries and of defence. I remember a lot of those websites were left up there because the general public didn't have access to them. I remember reading the paper, a list of web addresses for um, that gave away military secrets. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. You know, I, um, I bumped into the guy who did uh, the Labour Party's first website. And right. he said, uh, yeah, it was just getting hacked in all the time and people were, like putting pictures of knobs on it and stuff like that all the time. This is like 95. The, the goal was, like, was, no, was like there was no password. You could just go into it and just do what you want. <laughs> just like a whiteboard for the nation. Anyone can just add whatever you want. Yeah, I remember going I remember going on the first White House website. Yeah. And there was a a very simple recording of the White House dog who would have been Bill Clinton's dog barking and just a picture right. of the White House. Um do you know that there's a wonderful bit of internet archaeology you can do? The Space Jam oh, website yeah, is still up. Have Hilarious. you seen this, Tom? Yeah, no. Yeah. This is Have fantastic. Just Google now. It's worth it. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah, it's really funny. It? it takes you back. And another wonderful bit of uh, internet archaeology, the footballer Andy Carroll still has a Bebo page live. Does he? And it's like from the age of about 16, yeah. Oh, Aaron Ramsey had a MySpace from when he was 16. <laughs> With just a picture of him in his like teenage bedroom in Cafilis and and a list of all the bands he liked. It's great. Did, did you have Tom in your top eight, or did you move him out? Out of interest I moved him out. Did you? Okay, I, yeah. had him, I had him there for far too long in a way that I think Respect made it look like I only had seven friends. <laughs> so, um, very briefly, do you remember what the internet was called? To begin with, what the, the main what the most internet common superhighway? phrase? That's right, the information yeah. superhighway. Oh yes, called it. So, in the mid to late nineties, it really started to take off, and um, dot com companies started growing from everywhere. And the main reason for that is because interest rates were really, really low at this time. So, venture capitalists were kind of ready to put their money anywhere they could into these online companies. So huge number of these companies started up at this time. Um, very quickly, domain names uh, attracted sort of premium costs. I'll give you an example here. The founder of Jungle.com, which is one of the early dot-com companies, which later went under, paid $250 million for the domain name alone for Jungle.com. Oh, Such was this early boom. Um, out of interest, what wow. would your early what would either what would your dot com business idea be if you had to, if you had to come up with one if you either then or now uh, for now, you know Shazam. When if you haven't if you're not familiar with it, it's an app on your smartphone, and if you hear a song on the radio and you don't know what it is, you hold you you Shazam it, so you hold the phone up, and it will say, "Oh, that is Get Back by the Beatles." Uh, I, I don't know how you'd invent this, but a Shazam for smells. Okay. <laughs> so, so if I walked past the kitchen, I thought, oh, someone's house, this smells nice. <laughs> I'd hold my phone up and it would say, they're cooking with oregano. So 
In the late 90s, as I say, investors were desperate to invest their money in these growing dot-com businesses. I'll give you an example. Um, PayPal is one of the early examples of this. So in early 2000, Elon Musk and his business partner, Peter Thiel, uh, formed PayPal, uh, who initially were running at a huge loss because they were basically giving out free money. You got £10 when you signed up. And also, if someone you referred, um, they also got $10. And they had $15 million in the bank to begin with. And the head of the company told them this money at the rate they were growing would last six weeks, basically. They had six weeks. Such was the hemorrhaging of money at this rate of $10 for signing up. They'd have six weeks. They needed to get investors. Now, this is how much people wanted to invest in .com. They went to South Korea. They met with three different companies. They weren't quite sure who they were going to take the money for. They came back to America. One of these Korean investment companies rings up PayPal's lawyer and says, hi, um, where do you want us to wire the five million? The PayPal lawyer thinks this means that a deal's been set up and paperwork's been signed, gives the bank details. The Koreans pay five million dollars into the PayPal company. Next day, Peter Thiel rings them and goes, no, we haven't come to any agreement. Sorry, this isn't happening. Can I have your bank details so I can send you your $5 million back? And the Korean um, investors said, we're not giving you our bank details. You can't send it back. You have to keep the money. (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember this? This reminds me of the story. Half-remembered historical anecdote. There was like a guy in Wigan who... The, the UN went to send some money to a country, and it was hundreds of millions, yeah. and they got, the, they got the account number wrong and sent it to a guy in Wigan. <laughs> <laughs> or something like that. And <laughs> he woke up one day and he had, like, hundreds of millions in his account. And he now owns Wigan. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but I'm pretty sure that's right. And I think he did ultimately raise his hand and go, uh, what's this? So... Um, they refused to give them the bank deals, as I say, and they ended up just having to keep their money. And they became one of the early investors and, of course, made huge money from PayPal. This, they, this, this, it worked. The, the, these Korean investors made huge money. But this was the spirit of the time. People were desperate to pump their money into, into um, these companies. And a company that represents the boom and then bust of the dot-com bubble more than any other, really, is a company called Priceline.com. Now, I don't know if you've heard about Priceline.com. No. Um, they were founded by a man called Jay Walker, which I quite like because he was American. What a perfect name for an yeah, American. Yeah. Jay Walker, lovely stuff. Um, if he was he British, spotted... he'd be called Cross Where You Want. <laughs> Just go for it. More specifically, if you're not with your kids, cross whenever you want. <laughs> if you're with your kids, wait for the green light. Yeah, yeah. So um, Priceline noticed that 500,000 airline tickets uh, were being unsold, going unsold uh, each year. And Priceline offered these seats online to customers who were able to name the price of the tickets. So you could bid okay. what you wanted for these unsold tickets. They launched in 1998. This is staggering. They grew from 50 to 300, um, 300 employees very, very quickly. By the end of 99, they were selling more than 1,000 tickets a day. Now, would you like to fancy get... Would you like to... Do you fancy guessing how much they lost in the first few quarters as running as this new business? How much do you think they lost? Oh, it's going to be something. It's going to be something daft. This is isn't this it? is the way these dot com no, businesses I, run. I, I couldn't guess. In the first few quarters alone, they lost one hundred and forty-two point five million dollars. Oh okay? my That's god! That's what they're I running feel at. Sick. Okay. Any idea why they might have been losing that sort of money? You'd like to like I, to guess why they I were losing that sort of money? I can't understand. No, I can't. I couldn't guess. They were losing that money because 
Um, they had to buy tickets on the open market to fulfill the customer's lowball offers. So they were losing $30 on every ticket they sold. Oh, my God. Okay. They also what? spent $20 million on advertising alone to become visible, basically. But the key thing is about this, and this is what's staggering, the investors didn't care because <clears throat> they were seen as a sort of company that would change the way we all lived and the way we bought. And this is any company that was able to sell that idea, investors just shoved money into them. And so in March 1999, when this company that was losing $142.5 million uh, every few quarters went public on the stock market, on the first day, it was valued at $9.8 billion. <laughs> That is insane. <laughs> it's the largest first day valuation of an internet company to that date, okay? But the, this is what's heartbreaking and awful about it. This is exactly what the venture capitalists wanted and is at the root of the bubble bursting because they didn't care if these dot-com companies were functioning companies. They just needed the first day pop on the market, at which point all of the investors got out they just sold their money. They sold their shares to the general public. And this is what's happening time and time again with these dot-com companies. They, none of them were functioning companies. They couldn't survive. They, there's no way they could sustain at the way they were. But it didn't matter. The investors put their money in. They waited till they floated in the stock market. The first day, they'd always boom because the media were pressing this idea that the dot-com future was with everything. And then the general public would buy those shares. So these investors were just making unbelievable money knowing that these companies couldn't function. They just, but it didn't matter. And the drops wow. were huge. So I'll give you an example. Priceline dropped, from, dropped by 94% in value basically, um, uh, almost immediately after this. Oh, uh, and it's no surprise then the bubble, when it burst in the early 2000s, investors lost staggering sums of money. So by 2002, they think investor losses were estimated at around $5 trillion. Oh this my is basically God. the general public. <laughs> oh no. $5 trillion. Think what you could do with that. <laughs> Blimey. That's yeah. terrible really, isn't it? That is mad. I remember... Reading about the bubble bursting, The Guardian, the G2, I think it was, did a long piece on it. When I was in my second year at university, I remember reading this long piece, sitting in a baguette shop in Cardiff. <laughs> That's perfect. That really dates it. I love that. That's great. Baguette shop, which was hu huge for a period. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, not, not only baguette shop's huge. I'd invested £100 million in my local baguette shop. <laughs> the baguette boom. Remember the baguette boom? That was the big one, wasn't it? I was sitting in a baguette shop in Cardiff between lectures reading about the dot-com bubble bursting and just thinking, well, I'm glad I'm subsisting on a student loan and was unable to invest any money because ha-ha-ha-ha-ha. I, I, I think I took the right decision, actually, going back to my flat with rising damp, which my landlord has acknowledged does exist. <laughs> well, at least my shower's still standing. <laughs> <laughs> but the result of this, and this is what's interesting, is that because so many of these companies um, collapsed, it completely rewrote the online environment. It's basically created what we have now. So the companies that survived, Amazon, eBay, Google, things like this, were able to consolidate their place in the market. Because previously, the marketplace had been loads of companies, just infinite number of companies, tiny ones, and um, up-and-coming companies trying to wrestle for this space. After this collapse... After the bubble burst, you're basically left with these very large companies who had the profits of sort of like nations, basically. Yeah, and that's yeah. kind of what we have now. Um, 
final thing to give you an idea of the disaster it was during Super Bowl 34 in uh, 2000 14.com companies advertised uh, which was up from just two the year before and total spending on dot-com advertising during the 2000 Super Bowl game was 44 million dollars okay but within just a few years barely any of those companies that featured existed and today only one of the 14 companies that advertised during Super Bowl 2000 still exists and that's autotrader.com that's the only one that's autotrader autotrader advertised at the Super Bowl they did the money that's required to advertise at the Super Bowl okay the strength of company you should be to be advertising the Super Bowl and 13 of the 14 of those companies advertised have that's, collapsed that's incredible because it's the most expensive piece of advertising in the world isn't it sort of half time yes. the Super Bowl Absolutely. I'm always accused of being unambitious financially hear me out I think we should advertise this podcast during halftime at the Super Bowl. <laughs> so there we have it. Thank you very much for downloading this week's episode of Oh Water Time. Now, the suggestion of money and speculation, that came from Rebecca's email. So thank you very much to Rebecca Cross. So if you have a topic suggestion for us, send it to hello at owatertime.com. We love reading your emails. We love your correspondence. Uh, it's just of such a high quality, Tom. I don't know how yeah. our listeners do it. It's, it's, it's tremendously pleasing to me. If you'd yeah. like to leave us a review, uh, make sure it's five stars because I'm emotionally fragile. <laughs> And also, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make that lie that it helps people find the podcast, but really, I just really, really benefit from praise. <laughs> I work well when I'm being complimented. <laughs> Would you like me to keep screen grabbing them and sending, sending them to you on our WhatsApp group, Ellis? Yeah, you yeah, seem to quite yeah, enjoy yeah. that. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Isn't this nice? Basically, the flavour of our WhatsApp group is about once every uh, two hours or three hours, it'll, I'll send one round, it'll be, oh, isn't this nice? Oh, that's nice. Oh, it's lovely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, it's a real pick-me-up. It really, really does put a spring in my step. So um, keep sending us your stuff. If you've got any one-day time machine um, stories you'd like to send us, if you are related to anyone from the past who's done anything incredible or weird, do get in contact and keep supporting the show, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.